from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Did you know that on the day Dr. King was shot, the all-black security detail normally assigned to him was called off? They are the ones who would not allow him to stay at any hotel with balconies. Chief Wallace, did you ever ask what this was all about? Yes. And what were you told? Told that I had been threatened. This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Gangster Chronicles podcast is a weekly conversation that revolves around the underworld. From criminals and entertainers to victims of crime and law enforcement, we cover all facets of the game. Gangster Chronicles podcast doesn't glorify or promote illicit activities. We just discuss the ramifications and repercussions of these activities. Because after all, if you play gangster games, you are ultimately rewarded with gangster prizes. Our heart radio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find the Gangster Chronicles podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I'm Stephen Merchant. I was the co-creator of the British version of The Office with Ricky Gervais, and I'm an executive producer on the American version. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another installment of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Now, today, I am thrilled to present you with a guest from across the pond, 
over in jolly old England, Mr. Stephen Merchant. Stephen was the co-creator of the original British version of The Office. He, along with Ricky Gervais. Now, what the two of them did with that show was truly groundbreaking and obviously was the inspiration and basis of our show. But they have also had a huge influence on comedy in general, both here in the U.S. and in the U.K., where, based on their accents, I'm guessing they are from. So, you know, when we were setting up these interviews, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, I might get a a free trip to London out of this, right? I mean, I've, I've got to meet with Ricky and Steven in person, of course. I, I got to go to London. And then uh, a global pandemic happened. So sadly, that was not going to happen. But I feel very lucky uh, that we got to speak by phone from our respective homes. I, I think you guys are going to love this one. So without further ado... My tallest friend, Stephen Merchant. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. How are you doing? You know, I mean, as well as anyone can be expected to, you know, given the uh, crazy circumstances. Yes. You're you're in London? I'm in London, and uh, same lockdown rules apply here as they apply the rest of the world. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, pottering around. I mean, in quite a sort of relaxed outfit. I, I think the demarcation between my sleepwear and my daywear is very... Very blurred. <laughs> yes, I know. The people who get dressed up to go to work at home, I don't understand those people. I do encourage at least showering before you start working. You th- at home. Really? Yeah, that's a good idea. I think it's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, it's probably good. <laughs> um, how did you know Ricky before you guys started The Office? Or, or how did that come about? Well, so I met Ricky... Gervais at a radio station here in London. I had wanted to get into radio. I always thought that being like a radio DJ seemed like a very easy job. You could do maybe two hours a day, and then you would give you a lot of free time to do other stuff, whether it was writing or stand-up or whatever other aspirations I had. So I was keen to get into radio. And I um, I was quite young. I was in my early 20s, and I sent my resume to various radio stations, and no one cared. Right. But a new radio station was launching in London, and one of the guys who happened to read my resume was Ricky, who was, had just got a job there. And he had never had any experience in radio, and it's somehow sweet-talked his way into a job there <laughs> as, get this, the, the head of speech. The head of job s- title, the head of speech. I mean, if you've ever heard Ricky string a sentence together, often it's incoherent. So I don't know how he got that gig. Right. So I, he immediately decided he needed an assistant. And so I was available and keen and eager. And, and so he called me up for an interview and we hit it off. And he and I started working at this radio station together. Right. He needed an assistant, but really he needed someone to actually teach him speech. Oh, 100%. And also someone who, as he himself admitted during the interview, someone who will do all the work for me. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of eager and I didn't have a job. And I had done a little bit of sort of amateur radio and student radio. So I had a little bit of an understanding of it. 
And so, you know, we, we hit it off very quickly, similar sense of humor. And within a short while, we were sort of actually hosting a radio show together on, on the air and just had a good, easy rapport, you know, and, and a similar sensibility. And, and we sort of very quickly realized we, you know, we had sort of a, a chemistry. Right. And then you, obviously, you, you started working together. What were the influences for you at the time to create the UK office? Well, at the time in the UK, there had been a number of shows on the BBC and other networks that were fly-on-the-wall documentaries about very everyday subjects. Like there was, a, there was one about a driving school. A driving school, yes. And it was, yeah. And so, you know, it was just following normal people doing driving lessons and, and driving tests. And this kind of had caught a, a wave of, of popularity in the UK. And so when we did our version, we had those sorts of shows in our mind. And one of the unusual things about those shows was that often, particularly when they re- re- returned for like a second season, the people within them had sort of become moderate, moderately famous. Right. right. So they were those first kind of reality TV stars. And and they started to act differently in front of the cameras or they were aware of the cameras. And so I think that was something that was always informing us. You know, the idea that this documentary team were following this person in the in the case of David Brent, played by Ricky, who who was also aware that he was being filmed and so therefore was trying to give over a version of himself that he thought the world would love to see. And of course, what he didn't realize was they were actually looking at him and finding him interesting for different reasons than those that he intended. Right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, now this skips ahead like, you know, 15 years or whatever, but it's very interesting. You know, that's what, one of the things that Greg Daniels always said was that for the characters on the American version of The Office, if they ever saw themselves, like if it was ever released, it would change everything. Right. Well, in the in the British version, we did, because the British version had fewer seasons, we did, when we returned for some Christmas specials towards the end of the run, we did actually play with that idea that the characters had seen the documentary it aired and that they had various, or particularly the case of Ricky's character, had dis- disgruntlements about the way they'd been portrayed, which is often the complaint you'd hear from real reality people, right? That, you know, oh, they cut it in a certain way, they made me look like a fool. <laughs> right. And, um... So we were playing with that idea. And I guess you had it with sort of MTV's The Real World, I guess, did it, was one of the pioneers. And in the UK, there was that show Big Brother, which I know is still on in various versions all over the world. And that had just kind of hit the airwaves as well. And those people were coming out of this this house as reality TV stars. So it was a big cultural thing at the time. Right. Were there specific comedies or other television that sort of informed the sensibility or the sense of humor that you were looking at at the time? Well, certainly This Is Final Tap was a big influence and the Larry Sanders show was something that we often referenced. And there had actually been quite a few, if you like, fake documentaries in movies over the years, but there had been fewer of them on TV, it seemed to us. And, and you know, in a way... Because it, it, it sort of originated because I happened to get a job at the BBC. I was worried in my radio job with Ricky that we might end up getting fired, which indeed we did. So I had jumped ship and I joined the BBC. And while I was there, I had a, a training exercise and they gave me a camera team for a day. And they said, you want to go and film something? And I went off and I went to Ricky and I said, let's film something. And what we filmed sort of became a prototype of the office. And one of the reasons we did that in a documentary style was because 
um, it was quick and easy. You know, it didn't it didn't need to have um, all the kind of polish and refinement that you get on regular TV. So in a way, we we slightly fell into this format through circumstance. But because we pursued that and we became very obsessive about the reality of this world and where would the cameras be and how would the the people act in front of the camera if they knew it was watching them? Would they be honest? Would Tim say to Dawn, Jim and Pam, would they would they be honest with each other about their feelings for one another? Well, of course not, because the cameras are in their face and they don't want to reveal their hidden secrets. And so it sort of started becoming its own thing, which I think felt at the time quite new on TV. But it wasn't sort of like a you know a grand design. We didn't sort of sit there and think, ha, what's fresh and new? It just all these things kept suggesting themselves to us because we were trying to make you feel as realistic as possible, as though you could stumble on the TV uh, network and you'd find it and you might think it was a real documentary. In fact, funnily enough, after the first episode aired, I was on a train and obviously people had no idea who I was. I was just a writer. And these two women were talking on the train. And I was sat next to them and they said, um, one of them said, oh, did you see that documentary on TV last night about this crazy guy in this office? It was hilarious. <laughs> and the other woman said, well, no, I think, I think that was a, a new comedy. And the first woman said, oh, well, it wasn't very funny then. Um, <laughs> which I, I didn't understand. But, but what was interesting was that she had been fooled for a second into thinking it was a real thing, which was the biggest compliment that we could, we could hope for. Right. I, I mean, I remember hearing that a lot over here. Did, how was it received early on? I think it was sort of, it had very low viewership initially. Um, I think there'd been some good critical notices here and there, um, but no one was really watching. I think it went on in the summer, which is not a prime TV time in the UK. And I remember they had done a, we found this out many years later, but they had done a, a test screening for the general public and it had got the lowest test score ever. The only thing that, that beat it, that got the lowest test score was women's lawn bowls. Oh, it's a very specific game played <laughs> by, I guess, women in the UK where they roll balls along a lawn. And that is the only thing that, I didn't even know that was on TV, but uh, right. that had scored lower than The Office. And yet what happened was it just started to pick up steam. It got word of mouth recommendations from people. It started to win some awards. It was uh, rerun in the in the winter and more people started watching it. And then the, it was the moment in time when DVDs were really big. Everyone started buying DVD players. And yes. so I think that it started selling a lot of DVDs because I think people were like, oh, I can buy that guy I know in the office, that show called The Office. Right. And so, right. And so solely we sold so many DVDs because it was called The Office and people have a lot of work colleagues they need to buy gifts for. <laughs> so um, it, uh, and, then it, and then it just became a kind of, here in the UK, it became a little mini phenomenon. Yes. Well, in the States too. We were getting... I remember there were DVDs coming over, but the DVDs in the UK were different than, so you had to make sure you got an American, one that would play in an American player. Right. Yes, of course. Yes. My sister had an early one who was over there, but yeah, I, um, did you think that adapting the show when you started to first hear about this guy, Ben Silverman, maybe wanting to adapt it for the U S did you think that was a good idea? Well, I remember Ricky. I was, we must have been editing something because Ricky, I remember, came in the editing suite. He said, I just ran into this guy called Ben Silverman or Ben Silverman had tracked him down and had called. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. And he'd had this initial meeting about doing a version for the United States. And I remember saying at the time, Oh, well, that would be great, but the chances of that working are very slim. I, when I was a kid, I was a real fan of TV and comedy. I read a lot about it, and I knew a lot about American comedy, and I knew that they had tried to adapt very successful British shows for America, and many of them had failed for one reason or another. And so I was aware that the success rate was very low and that, and that we shouldn't get too excited about this as a sort of potential next phase of our careers because I just I just thought, well, it's probably not going to work out, even with the best will in the world. So why not? Let's let them do it and, you know, good luck to them and it would be fun. And I was a big fan and I'm a big fan of American comedy and, you know, certainly a big influence on us was like Cheers and the the idea of, you know, the Cheers bar is this kind of surrogate family, which is very much what The Office is, I guess, in many ways. And yes. so um, we were excited about the idea of it being on American TV and having an American version, but but also very realistic that it, it seemed unlikely it would it would succeed for whatever reason. Yes. It's a hard time for hiring. So you need a hiring partner built for hard times. That's indeed. If you're hiring, you need indeed. Because indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. 
With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Gangster Chronicles podcast is a weekly conversation that revolves around the underworld. From criminals and entertainers to victims of crime and law enforcement, we cover all facets of the game. Gangster Chronicles podcast doesn't glorify or promote illicit activities, we just discuss the ramifications and repercussions of these activities. Because after all, if you play gangster games, you are ultimately rewarded with gangster prizes. Our Heart Radio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find the Gangster Chronicles podcast on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcast. So Ben Silverman approaches you about adapting the series for America. Do, do you remember the first time you met Ben? I don't think anyone can forget the first time they meet Ben Silverman. You know, he is a sort of, as you well know, a kind of force of nature. Yes. Um, just, yeah, it's like a man who has drunk, you know, 15 espressos just directly before the meeting to just really get himself awake. And um, he's off and running and he's, Whenever they do movies about Hollywood, they always have like a producer character who's like, talks up, talks up a mile a minute, you know, and we're going to make you, we're going to make you stars, kid. And he's kind of like that. You know, Ben is like the kind of Hollywood producer cliche that you see in movies. And yet, listen, it works, you know, he, he's dynamic and he, and he got the thing moving. And it seemed like, you know, before we knew it, we were having meetings in the US, sitting down to talk with potential showrunners and, and, and we were off to the races. Yeah. Did you, so, you know, you, you trust this guy, Ben, and you meet Greg and you feel like he understands it. Was there a certain point that you thought that it might work for American audiences or were you still being sort of realist and, and skeptical that, that it would translate? You know, we were very infused by Greg and Greg came to London and he sat with us and we kind of dissected the British version and we tried to explain, you know, what, you know, the kind of, socioeconomic standing of all the characters so he could kind of get his head around where they would be equivalent in the US. 
where would, uh, you know, Scranton replace his slough and all these other things which he had to kind of understand. And he was very sensitive and thoughtful about that stuff, which is exciting for us. But then it was obviously, then you casting and could they find the guy that would replace Ricky? And so I just remember each step of the way, we were kind of not suspicious or nervous, but just thinking, oh, this will probably evaporate. Right. Well, and the show struggled, you know, early on for, you know, people didn't get it. And it was so unlike anything that was on television. And in America, we didn't have also the shows that you were sort of directly mocking, right? There was like, you know, MTV's The Real World, right? But those were all about sexy young people. There wasn't Driving right. School or, or shows like that, 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 you know, it was sort of directly mocking. And, and I heard a story as well that, you know, when we came back and we were going to come back for a season two and they only offered six more episodes and it certainly looked like they were, you know, because Steve had 40 year old version, they were sort of keeping us on life support because they didn't want to look like idiots, but they still didn't believe in it that NBC said, okay, you can do six, but you have to cut the budget and everybody has to take less. And Ben went first to you and Ricky and thought you guys would say like, no, like this is, this was the deal that we made, but that you Greg, Ricky, everybody said, no, let's give it a shot. I mean, do you remember, was that just based on you wanting the show to go on? Or did you at that point think that there was something that was brewing there? I definitely remember thinking, I was very pleased with what Greg and everyone had done in that first season. But I do remember thinking that I actually wanted them to break away from the British version more. I still felt there was a little bit of a feeling of like clinging on to some of the vibes or elements or, or trying to be a little too faithful to us. And what was exciting was the more that the show was moving away from the British version. And I think whether it was a conversation with Greg or, but I certainly felt like that was a plan that was starting to brew for the second season. And I was very keen. And I know Ricky was just to kind of, you know, we, we liked everybody and we wanted the show to do well and, it, and, it, and whatever we could do to help and keep it on the air was important to us. I mean, the funny thing for us, you've got to remember, is that we were here in the UK, so this was before um, streaming services. So we only saw the episodes on, like, DVDs, which they had to mail over to us. Right. And we would watch them. And, you know, what was weird to me was that when we did our version, we were so involved that obviously we never got to kind of enjoy it as a viewer. You know, we only ever enjoyed it, uh, you know, in little fragments here and there. Right. But when we got sent these DVDs from America, it was like someone had designed this show that was like on our prototype and we were getting to enjoy it as fans. You know, we would just sit there and, and laugh and enjoy it. And, and it was weird. It was like some kind of weird competition where you write in, hey, would you make a show about this? And they sort of mail it to you every week. <laughs> you know? um, and so we were very keen, just as fans, we were keen to have it keep on the air. So you liked it. You, you, you liked I it. I liked it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I thought everyone was great. And uh, honestly, I was, I was all in. Yeah. In season two, you know, one of the things that, you know, was done, you talk about veering from the British show. And I think a, a major thing that happened there in season two was the decision to soften Michael Scott, right. To not make him exactly like David Brent. I mean, David Brent to me is a genius character that had a shelf life, right? Like after 12 episodes, it's hard for him to still have a job, right? And to have the show, con <laughs> to, to have the show continue, you know, softening and, and bringing out more of the humanity of Michael Scott. Were you in support of that? Um, well, it's funny because 
I think, again, it goes to what the traditions are in our two countries in terms of comedy. And I think for years in the UK in particular, there's been this long tradition of TV comedies celebrating losers and sort of laughing at losers, often losers who have a slightly malevolent quality or a selfishness to them. So I think back to in the, in the 60s, the, the biggest TV star in the UK was a guy called Tony Hancock, whose character was a kind of sort of failed actor who was kind of snobbish and would happily, you know, screw someone over for an opportunity. And that was, that was a show that cleared the streets when that was on, you know? Right. And then uh, John Cleese's Basil Fawlty in the 70s, the kind of sort of uh, obnoxious hotel manager. So there's a long tradition in the UK of slightly unlikable leading characters in comedies. A plus combined with the fact that somehow in the UK we tolerated that bittersweetness, that melancholy. I mean, there was a show on that was a big show in the UK when I was growing up called Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads. And it had a theme song. And the opening lyrics of the theme song of this, oh, this is a sitcom, remember, were, was, um, oh, what happened to you? Whatever happened to me? What became of the people we used to be? I mean, it was all about failed opportunities and, and missed chances and right. life, life, a life that could have been lived that never was. So there's that sort of tradition in the UK. And I think traditionally in the US, that has not been so much the case in network TV. And when you think of Friends, the Friends theme tune, for instance, is very different. Yes. You know, I'll be there yes. for you, you'll be there for me. Yes. So, so I think it seems sensible to me that if they could rewire the office at all, it would just be to, to maybe downplay some of those more sort of cynical, sour British elements and, and just dial up a bit more of that American can-do, bright optimism, which I felt they did without, I think, losing the fundamental DNA of what makes the show work. Right. Mike Shore specifically talked about Greg mentioning the show in season two could exist exactly the same as this, as in the season one. 90% of the episode could be exactly the same, but just at, you know, 10%, of just a little bit of hope, just a little bit of, of positivity for Michael Scott to, to make people at least potentially see some good in him, whether it's giving him a love sure. interest, you know, you finding out he's actually, he's actually good at his job in a way, you know, like those kinds of things. Well, I also think what both of the characters have in common though, is that behind all of the things which make them kind of dislikable, unlikable, they're not bad people. They're sort of just they're needy people, right? And that's yes. their great weakness is that they want to be your friend, but they also want to be your boss. And that's the thing which I think is what you, when you dial into that, I think what, you know, Steve. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Carell managed to do, and the, and the writers did, was kind of bring that out more, bring out that kind of, that he's a little boy, really, in a world of adults. And once you dial into that, and you see that there is a kind of lonely sweetness behind it all, then I think you start to kind of really root for the character. And I think Steve, in particular, has such a likable quality, that the more they could lean into that part of Steve, then, then, the, then the more popular I think the character became. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you co-wrote The Convict. You directed Customer Survey. And in both of those episodes, actually, that we see a very vulnerable side to Michael Scott. And it's interesting that those two episodes were two that you worked on a lot, that in The Convict, that he's upset that his employees think that prison is better than his office. <laughs> and you start to feel right, right. sorry for but him. Isn't it yeah. ironic? Isn't it ironic that, I mean, I know I don't want to sort of play, you know, partisan politics, but I mean, I think whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you'd have to admit that there is a great deal of that in, in the current president of the United States. And, yes. you know, Trump has this weird neediness to be loved, but also feared and respected, right? And, and it's a very weird mix, and it never leads to happiness because there's such a dark well that however much validation you get, it doesn't matter how many good reviews you get, they'll only obsess about the one bad review. And I think that's sort of what Michael Scott and Donald Trump share. And, you know, and I think that's the thing which always has make, made me find him so funny as a character, because there's this never ending well of neediness. And you <laughs> just keep, you can keep trialing in the compliments and the praise and the laughter, and it will never be enough. Right. And for whatever reason, I just find that both adorable and hilarious at the same time less adorable in the case of donald trump but you take my point <laughs> um well i mean talking about politics but not talking about politics i mean the british office itself started with the premise of redundancy right like it's something that's a 
a serious issue for people. I mean, the idea of, of not having yeah. a job and, you know, the American office in the end examined that as well, but also took on serious social topics, gay issues, healthcare, race relations, uh, small businesses going under corporate greed, uh, you know, by, by the end of our run, looking at the financial crisis was looking at real issues. How did you feel like that played out in the American version? I think our starting point had always been just being true, making true observations about our experience of office life. And we had worked in offices, so we were trying to kind of be particularly um, accurate about that, the way people interacted, the behaviors, the strange little training exercises you had to do and the, and the sort of bureaucracy of it and the fact that this group of people were just arbitrarily brought together and were then forced to sort of get on. And, and as we said in one of our episodes, you know, you spend more time with those people than you do your own friends and family. And so that was, I think, the jumping off point for us was like, could we make something that felt very truthful and people recognized their working life in the show? And I think what you guys were able to do because of the sheer run of your show was just broaden that observation out beyond the, the sort of parameters of the office into those bigger ideas of, you know, of relationships and and marriage and career and and, and how the bigger world impacts on the smaller world. And, you know, and, and obviously they were able to expand the uh, repertoire of the characters. And so, you know, all of the characters, including your own, were sort of able to be explored and deepened. So it's just, I mean, it, one of the things I've always loved about American shows is you just have so much more breathing space and airtime to just really delve into everything. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders. The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. It's been four days since those bodies were found, and there's no arrest as of this morning. They were afraid, especially out in that area. What if they come back or whatever? It scared me to death. Like, it scared me. It, I was very, very intimidated to live here. Crazy to think you go to sleep one night, maybe snuggling with your loved one, and never wake up. Or maybe you wake up in a struggle for your life, which you lose. Join host David Ratterman as he explores one fateful night when evil descended upon small-town Ohio. Killed eight members of an Ohio family in a pre-planned execution. A family was targeted, most of them targeted while they were sleeping. The Pink Moon Murders is available on February 22nd, and you can follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Glory Adam, host of Well-Read Black Girl. Each week, I sit in close conversation with one of my favorite authors of color and share stories about how they found their voice, honed their craft, 
and navigated the publishing world and composed some of the most beautiful and meaningful words I've ever read. We journeyed together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. And of course, I check in with members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club. It's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. And you're all invited to join the club. So tell your friends to tell their friends so we can be friends who love books. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Office, you know, as you created, might be the greatest example in television history of cringe comedy. How would you define cringe comedy? I think one of my great flaws is I, it never occurred to me in a way that this, this cringe comedy thing would, would be a label. <laughs> it was not an intention to make people squirm. It was, it was just that for us, it was so much funnier when someone who was trying to be funny, for instance, said a joke and then you just heard the silence and then you just sat in the silence <laughs> for as long as possible. That, I don't know why Ricky and I just found that so funny. <laughs> and like, for instance, there was a thing where you used to say, uh, there was, it, so often if you go back to old episodes of The Simpsons, you'll see like one of The Simpsons characters will give a speech in front of the town and the speech will bomb and it'll just cut to all the townsfolk and you'll just hear, huh. and to <laughs> us, that was so funny. And so our, our attempt after all of kind of David Brent's bad jokes was just to sit in that uncomfortable silence. And that just made us die with laughter. And it was only when we started hearing from people, oh, that made me feel really uncomfortable or I had to watch it through my fingers. Only then did it occur to us, oh, maybe this is not always as enjoyable for people as it is for us. Um, and I think maybe it was like, I think if you work on a horror movie, because you know the blood is fake and the knife is not real, you can just keep adding more violence and more bloodshed, right? And you go, ha this is great. And then when you watch it with an audience, they're like, this is horrible. And um, I think for us, it was a bit like that. Like we just, it was so funny to us to just keep turning the screw and making this world uncomfortable that we, it didn't occur to us that people would find it cringeworthy um, until <laughs> they started telling each other. Yeah. And then of course we just doubled down. Then we're like, oh, well now we're, now we're going to really lay it off. Well, right. Like there is, I mean, just calling a spade a spade, right? Like there is a difference between s trying to tell a joke that bombs or the Simpsons speech and, you know, like a joke, I can't remember the character, but I just heard this recently. It was pulled up, but like a character telling David Brent she's going on holiday and he says, exploring yourself. Like, you, that's, <laughs> right. that is more than just, that is, there's Well, I a, guess, I guess, but I think it was just, it was just staying true to the character and this kind of, this neediness and this attempt to be liked and this attempt to make connections, but also like slightly lascivious or, I mean, the big problem for him, for the David Brent character, to some degree, Michael Scott, is they just didn't know when to shut up, right? Or they just didn't know what to say. Right. And they were all, but they, they always had to be talking. You know, sometimes silence is golden, but not for them. They just have to speak and they think they are great joke tellers. They think they're great at conversation. They think they have great personalities. 
They want to show off for the cameras that are filming them. And so they never shut up. And it's one of the great disparities between people who are like that. They, they just don't realize how they're coming across to the world, right? So again, to go back to Trump, Trump thinks he's killing it. Every time he opens his mouth, he thinks he's crushing it. He never goes back and thinks, oh man, I, some of what I said there was really garbled and gobbledygooky and that didn't make much sense. <laughs> he's not thinking that. He's thinking, why didn't they love that? That was a great speech. What's wrong with them? Right. And that's the weird gap between those people is that they can't see themselves as the rest of the world sees them. So to me, it makes perfect sense that those people would, would say those things. Right. And yes, it is uncomfortable, I guess, because those people are uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's that in real life, we just sort of tolerate them or we walk away or we ignore them. And, and in the TV world, we just force you to sit and watch this person. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it goes to the idea that they just, that both characters are truly just misguided in their approach. And certainly, you know, Michael Scott is played by Steve Carell is, is was one of my favorite jo I've told people one of my favorite jokes that we ever did on the office was Michael Scott really trying to have a bonding moment with Oscar and really wanting to, to understand, you know, his way of life and, and asking him what term would be less offensive than Mexican than calling him Mexican. And Oscar saying, there's nothing offensive about Mexican. He's like, yeah, 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 no, sure. But like, what's something less offensive than to call you Mexican? And to me, that is like, like he truly just doesn't understand. He's not trying to be, he's trying to be woke, right? Or PC and he just doesn't get it. But that moment of cringe is like, oh. But I think it, it you know, it in some ways predated this conversation that everyone has now about sort of woke culture and appropriation and all these other things. And at the time, certainly when we began our version, it was the beginning of sort of political correctness in the workplace and political correctness being a very big buzzword and people, there were certain terms that supposedly you weren't allowed to use anymore. And that, you know, in schools, you couldn't refer to the blackboard, you had to refer to the chalkboard and, right. you know, and then all these different rules and manhole cover couldn't be called that. It had to be called maintenance cover and, and there was a lot of sort of uh, reaction to that and people saying, well, you're, you're policing us and you're policing the way we speak. And so there were a lot of people sort of trying to be woke before they, that term was existing and just not understanding and, and failing. And the reason they failed was because you shouldn't have to try. You should just talk yes. to someone like a person and you shouldn't see their color or their sexuality or anything else. And that was the problem. That was why they were hung up is they couldn't, they couldn't see them as anything other than a gay person, a Mexican person, right. you know, uh, a person of color, whatever. They couldn't see beyond that. that was, and so they, their heart may have been in the right place, but they were, they were still treating people as other, right? And as long as you do that, you're doomed. Yes. I heard something recently that I did not know, that before Greg decided to oversee and come back for the last season, he asked you to show run. Is that true? Uh, I remember, yes, I remember him talking to me about the idea of being involved with those latest seasons or that last season. Yes, and I and I was very flattered, and that would have it would have been enormous fun. I think for me, it was probably like it would have been going back to the well of something, you know, perhaps you know too late, or I moved on in my head, or for whatever reason, I think I just felt like it would it would just be weird, or I just wouldn't I didn't feel like it would be the right move for me. But my God, it would have been a blast. Yeah. I mean, directing that episode of Customer Survey was one of the most fun I've had in 
in all of my career. I mean, I was only really around for a handful of weeks, but just being in the writer's room for the first couple of weeks and then on the floor with you guys, I mean, it was just so much fun. I mean, it really was, but in a weird way, I didn't have the kind of responsibility that you'd have if you were show running, you know, I could kind of dip in and, and just be part of the fun without as much of the responsibility. How was the writer's room different than like, say the writer's room in the UK or, or how was that experience different? Well, of course, in the UK, it, traditionally, you know, uh, British comedies are normally written by one or two people. There's very rarely a big writer's room. We don't do as many episodes, so there isn't the need. So the British version of The Office was just me and Ricky sitting in a room for six months, you know, hammering out the episodes. Whereas, you know, coming to the US, it was great. I mean, you've got 12 or 15 brilliant minds all throwing ideas around, these jokes sort of pinging around. And I mean, to me, as a sort of fan of comedy and student of comedy, particularly American comedy, just being in that environment and seeing a different way of working, and it was such a thrill to me. In fact, I remember I was sharing some stories from my own experience when I first started working, and I had talked about how I worked at a call center, and I had done training, and the guy who was doing the training assigned us, he would send us into one room, and we'd have to make pretend to be a customer. And we would call one of the other trainees who was in another room, and they would be the, the person at the call center. And we, as the fake customers, would have to try and sort of practice with them on how they could answer a call. And I remember the, the guy wouldn't let me do it anymore because I was, I was too nasty a customer. Because <laughs> I really just, I just kept on improvising as just the worst person to have. <laughs> because I figured if I'm going to do customer training, I better deal with the assholes, right? Right, you know, right. I'm going to need that information. And so I remember selling that in the writer's room. And Lee and Gene, two of the writers, went off and wrote a version of that and gave it to Jim and to Dwight and Michael, and, and they put that in the show. And so that was, that, I remember that being a real highlight of sort of this weird little fragment of my life suddenly being transposed onto TV. Did you like the way that the American office ended, that the story ended? I thought it, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was lovely. Yeah, I, I thought it was really satisfying and, um, you know, no one was machine gunned down. Right. There was, you know, nothing, nothing so stressing. I also thought that, you know, when when Michael Scott left, I thought that was a beautiful episode as well. I thought there was some really fine episodes, you know, when when characters were leaving or when the show was really playing on the emotions. And I think, again, that's one of the things I loved about American shows was that at their best, they're like soap operas with laughs. And and I don't mean soap opera disparagingly. I mean in the sense that you are so invested in these characters in this world. And you keep coming back and you care about them and you love them and you want the best for them and you have opinions about them. And, and that was what, you know, those nine seasons did so sweetly and so successfully, I think. And so by the time the show leaves the air, it's like these friends of yours have all moved away. I mean, it's sort of, it's sad. Yes. What are you most proud of in terms of its legacy? Honestly, you can't begin to understand when I was growing up, America and American TV was so remote to me, so distant. It was something I, I adored. I mean, I watched shows that I loved, American shows I loved religiously, and particularly sitcoms, like the ones I've mentioned, MASH and Roseanne and Frasier and Cheers and Friends. I mean, I never missed an episode. You know, I, I was there when the new one started airing in the UK. I remember watching the first episode of Friends, the, the, the evening it aired in the UK. I was with it from the beginning. I watched every episode. I, I was in, you know, and so to me, to have been involved with a show which which is that for american audiences and for worldwide audiences and is and is taken to their heart in the same way that i took shows like that to mine 
that's the biggest thrill for me. It's to be part of that family of American TV comedy, you know, and, and put in the lineage of those other shows is such an overwhelming thrill for me. That's awesome. One last question. The very final thing that's said in the American version of The Office is the talking head by Pam. To paraphrase, she basically says that she thought it was weird when somebody came and wanted to do a documentary on these people who worked in a paper company. But she says, in the end, I think it was a good idea because there's beauty in ordinary things. And isn't that kind of the point? And I think that, you know, Greg Daniels wrote that. And to him, that was the point. Do you have an idea of what was the point? Well, I, I think, you know, like with any good, any good art, if you can call TV sitcoms art, any good comedy and any kind of art, it's about making us feel connected as people and, and reminding us of the things which connect us and the, and the, the similarities we have. And that's, that's the great joy. That's the pleasure it brings. That's the connectivity that it provides. And, and that's why people love to laugh in a group, in a comedy club or in a movie theater, because they want they, the shared experience of laughter is unifying. So to me, that's what the show does is people, they relate to the characters or they see a version of themselves or see a version of the person they could have been, or they say, that's just like my brother-in-law. That's just like the guy I work with. That stuff makes you feel like there's other people that think like you, you know, and, and are living the world and experiencing the world like you, and it makes you feel less alone. And that's, that's why I'm a fan of stuff. And I think hopefully that's why people are a fan of this show. Steven, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me for real. I really appreciate it. Of course, I, mate. Of course. I, 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 yeah, I hope uh, you stay safe over there and stay home. And I don't know, sometime soon we'll go to another Clippers game. That would be great. That's all for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I mean, is it just me or do British people sound way smarter than other people? I I feel smarter after hearing that conversation. Anyhow, thank you so much to Stephen for joining me. I truly appreciate it. And to the rest of you, tune in next week to hear my conversation with the other half of this dynamic duo, this comedic genius duo, Ricky Gervais. You won't want to miss that. And if you're liking this podcast, well, don't forget to subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app you were using. I don't know, maybe even leave us a review. Rate us highly if you're feeling inspired. But until next time, everybody, please have a great week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.
Hello, this is Christina Hutchinson. And Corinne Fisher. We're thrilled to announce that our show, Guys We F*** the Anti-Slut-Shaming Podcast, is returning to wide release. That's right. Every Friday, we talk to one of our favorite comedians or an expert in the field of sexuality, love, and relationships. To hear what all the f***s are about, subscribe now. And listen to the Luminary original podcast, Guys We F*** starting January 21st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the creator of The Bright Sessions comes a new fiction podcast for all ages. When a fellow student vanishes, Max starts to look into the disappearance. Her investigation draws her deep into the dark woods around Hastings and even deeper into the secrets and lies that course through the veins of this sleepy town. This new YA mystery from writer-director Lauren Shippen is an audio drama with heart and wit that involves the audience in a way no fiction podcast ever has. Listen to Maxine Miles on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Arden Marine from Insatiable and the Will You Accept This Rose podcast. And I'm Julianne Robinson, an Emmy-nominated director of Bridgerton. And we are the hosts of Lady of the Road, a funny and inspiring podcast where we have conversations with influential women about their lives and we get self-help advice. Because we are always looking to improve ourselves. True story. We talk about money, health, relationships, you name it, from inspiring women like Joan Jett, Nicole Byer, Lauren Lapkus, Retta, and more. Listen and subscribe to Lady of the Road on the iHeartRadio radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.